There will always be perilous waters which someone must sail. Into valleys, into waters, into jungles, into hell. Let us ride, let us ride home again with a story to tell. Into darkness, into danger, into storms that grip the night. Don't give in, don't give up, but give thanks for the glorious fight. You can tremble, you can fear it, but keep your fighting spirit alive. Boys, let the shiver of it sting you, fling into battle, spring to your feet. Boys, never hold back your step for a moment. Never doubt that your courage will grow. Hold your head even higher and into the fire we go. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, April 26th. 2020. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at FileSpotPhoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. So, Michael, uh, you have a, uh, a story here about making a connection this week through Cast Albums. Was that through CastAlbums.com or just some other form? form? Oh, no. What happened was, uh, I think this is such a sweet story. I hope you'll agree. Uh, our friend Josh Ellis uh, sent out, uh, he does email uh, chains to, to friends and colleagues, and he sent a wonderful photo. Um, uh, maybe I can send it along. This photo was posted on the Follies Facebook page, page today by Kim Calden. Caldenberg, excuse me, Kim Caldenberg, showing her parents, Keith Caldenberg and Helen Blount, H-E-L-O-N Blount, when they took over as Herman and Cleo in the original Broadway production of The Most Happy Fella. Uh, Helen replaced Selma Diamond in a tour of Follies, hence the Follies connection, um, Having memorized all things Happy Fella, I recognize the names Keith Kaldenberg immediately. He originally played the doctor. So there's this wonderful photo of the two of them. Now, I knew him from the cast album of Happy Fella, definitely. I also know him. Uh, he has a small role of a hotel clerk on the recording of The Ballad of Baby Doe, the American opera by Douglas Moore that I have with, with Beverly Sills. And then Helen Blount... Um, the only thing I know her from is, I've mentioned this recording before, a cast album of a 1962 off-Broadway musical called Fly Blackbird. And uh, it uh, was a wonderful show about the civil rights movement. And apparently the situation in that show is that she plays a prison matron um, that all of these people... Uh, this group of protesters are, are brought into the station, uh, you know, for disorderly contact or whatever. Uh, 
and she is a, a white prison matron and one of the police officers is black, but they wind up having this wonderful little duet that they sing uh, where they, it turns out um, that they're from the same town and the name of the town is the title of the song. And the way they pronounce it is Natchitoches, Louisiana. And it's just this sweet song from this incredibly obscure 1962 off-Broadway musical. So um, anyway, I connected with Kim Kaldenberg on Facebook. And I said, um, I told her that I knew her mother from that, as well as her father from Happy Fella and, and, and Baby Doe. And I said, do you have the cast album of Fly Blackbird? And she said, no, I'm ashamed that I don't. And I said, well, I could certainly send it to you digitally because uh, it's I've been out of print since probably 1963, you know, uh, and she said, oh, that would be amazing. So I sent it to her and she, you know, and she downloaded it and then she listened and she said, I'm listening to mom's song and I'm crying. And I said, well, I just re-listened to it also and I'm crying and she wasn't even my mother. Because it's a sweet little song about um, one of the, the last, one of the lines is, um, uh, Natchitoches, Louisiana, Twas there I spent my childhood years with all the hopes and all the fears of innocence in a strange new world. And first of all, this is 1962, so that was like a year before the Kennedy assassination, which many people feel was the, the end of innocence for this country. And now, of course, we're, you know, we're in the middle of this crisis now and, and all, I think, spending a lot of time thinking back on times that were simpler in so many ways. So um, so that was just a nice little connection that I made. And and, and someone who, uh, I mean, as far as I know, uh, Helen Blount, I think that's that may well be her own only cast recording. Uh, so by no means. Oh, okay. <laughs> ironically, <laughs> ironically, I really thought when you said 1962, I said, "Oh, good, we're going to talk about Riverwind." Do you know Riverwind? Uh, no, I could clearly not. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, Riverwind is a great score. Seriously, by a guy named John Jennings. This this show ran over a year off Broadway, and um, and did get a cast album on London Records, which is rather strange because usually you associate London mm. Records with London musicals, yeah. but but indeed um, it did. And I really, um, I, it's never been on CD. Um, Fly Blackbird hasn't either, for that matter. Not right. that cast recording. I think there was a subsequent one. I, I know I have two recordings of Fly Blackbird on CD, but I'm not. I know one is, you know, a um, Certainly a dupe, but uh, from an LP, I don't remember if the other one is or not. But uh, but nevertheless, I really recommend the score of Riverwind. Um, it doesn't have a good book, I'll grant you. I've seen it twice, and um, but it it could have had a good book. It, it is about this little um, out of the way place. Uh, Riverwind is the name of the uh, town, and uh, people go there to um, you know, just chill out and. Um, and so a, a young girl is there and uh, falls in love with a, a much older man who comes to visit. And uh, he's attracted to her, too, simply because she's young. But he does, he does the right thing. But the score, um, tremendous work. And Helen Blount actually got billing over the title. 
Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, really. I mean, so the, like three other people, but still, um, and ironically enough, it was directed by Adrian Hall, who later went to Providence, Rhode Island and, um, created Trinity square as it was called at the time. Now it's simply Trinity. Um, and, um, really made a, quite a career for himself, uh, there, but, uh, he, he directed, he also directed the mousetrap, that famous, uh, British play that's never stopped running until now, of course. Um, um, but, uh, <laughs> off Broadway where it didn't run nearly as long needless to say but if you still have a turntable and you can still find a copy of riverwind i recommend it extraordinarily highly and really um even though it sounds like a commercial off-broadway musical there's a very interesting um uh, implication in the song about somebody being gay that uh, was a little ahead of its time especially for a commercial off-broadway musical so um but isn't that funny that um <laughs> you know because even the same year granted fly blackbird was earlier in the year and riverwind i think opened in december but when you said 1962 i I was ready for this tribute for Riverwind. Wow. <laughs> I'm I'm looking it up. So she was in Happy Fella. Uh, she was in Do I Hear a Waltz uh, in the ensemble and then understudy to Mrs. McElhenney. Mm-hmm. Uh, fig Leaves Are Falling. The Fig yeah. Leaves Are Falling. Uh, Follies, as previously mentioned. Um, Very Good Eddie, understudy mm-hmm. from Madame Metropo. Musical Chairs, 1980. Yeah, um, short-lived show. Yeah. And uh, her last credit, Broadway credit, was Woman of the Year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm. So, Helen Blount. Mm-hmm. Wow. such a It's so <laughs> wonderful that we're uh, able to be, be able to reach out to so many people globally in this time of when we're all in our homes. Sure. Somebody was mentioning if we had, you know, uh, been restricted to our homes, uh, you know, 15, 20 years yeah, ago. Sure. Yeah, you know, sure. Yeah. our long distance phone bills. We haven't yeah. had a long distance phone bill in how long? Sure. But our long distance phone bills would have been enormous. Mm-hmm. Imagine. That's that. right. Not only would we have been limited to phone, but yes, those were in the days when you got charged by the minute. Mm. <laughs> charged <laughs> by the minute. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> It's, uh, I tell you, it, uh, you got to take the good with the bad right now. That's right. That's right. You know, the, uh, the, the comments on, on YouTube, uh, videos that are so inhuman and mean and cruel and things like that, along with all these really wonderful things that we're able to spend so many zoom calls and, and reach out and see everybody virtually uh, in this time that we can't see everybody face to face. But this is a really great story, Michael. Thank you for sharing that with us. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. So April 26th, what a date. Back in 1970 at the Alvin Theater, something happened. Peter, what was it? Yeah, company opened. Um, and um, <clears throat> the company that uh, opened was not the one I saw at the Schubert Theater in Boston on March mm, 2nd or 3rd, somewhere around there, ah. uh, when another 100 people was in the second act and Dean Jones was singing Happily Ever After rather than being alive. But uh, other than that, uh, yes, it was um, the show that uh, George Firth and Stephen Sondheim wrote that changed a lot of things, um, a lot of things. And um, boy, was that album played everywhere uh i remember a friend telling me he was um driving down a street in indiana and he was stopped at a light and he could hear um the company album uh playing from a window that was open um 
So it really was very far reaching and uh, certainly changed a lot of things and established Sondheim's reputation because when you think of it, he hadn't had a Broadway show in five years and that was Do I Hear a Waltz and that was lyrics only and uh, that was considered a disappointment and um, we hadn't heard from him. Ironically enough, um, he had done that TV musical Evening Primrose where the opening song was If You Can Find Me, I'm Here which was almost autobiographical. Um, so, yes, uh, company changed a lot of things, and uh, Lord knows it's had a lot of revivals, and we'd be seeing one right now, of course, if things were different, and was was sorry we're not. And I'll never forget seeing the documentary of the recording sessions on TV. That was just so incredibly exciting and new. Uh, I don't think I had ever seen any footage of any recording session of anything before that. And uh, to have all those people there and, of course, the stretch drama and and just the, the idea of that how long the sessions take and that their people were smoking during them. <laughs> <laughs> stretch. You know, what's also interesting is when um, Dean Jones finishes being alive, the look on his face Yes. It's so interesting because it really is. I'm done with this. It is over. You know, um, uh, you could really tell that he was closing the door on uh, that. No, of course, um, he did have to do performances still. He promised them um, about a month, but um, still you could tell that he was um, certainly tuning out from uh, the experience. But um, in terms of the the recording session uh, video, which is uh, still available, which is um, what's great fun is you can tell when you're hearing (laughs) renditions of the songs that didn't make the album, you know, you know, okay, take 23, you know, that type of thing. Um, Because we all know the album so well that we know uh, what wound up on it, um, every second of it so to hear the little differences um that didn't make it uh, uh that uh, tom shepherds did not choose to put on the album is is great fun too you know it, uh, thank you for saying that because there were two moments in it that i've always wondered about and i i should really ask someone try to ask someone who's still around while there is someone still around uh because i i've always wondered uh there are two things at the end of um you could drive a person crazy uh, as we know the song and as it is, was recorded mm-hmm. on the album, yeah, yeah. at the end, they go, Bobby is my hobby and I'm giving it up. Bah. But mm-hmm. on the on the, right. one of the takes that we see on the documentary, it goes, yeah. they go, crazy person, yourself. And the music goes, that's right. Bobby is my hobby. And then the other tiny little thing is that at the end of getting married today, um, the, there's that last note uh, let us pray that we are getting married we're not getting married today and they hold a note and it goes but on the documentary it goes but that resolution note is not on the album and so uh, it's like who decided it when did they decide it why did they record it you know if if they weren't going to use it it's very interesting but your point about um the um the recording session how arduous it is the first one i ever attended live was for an off-broadway musical called oil city symphony oh and um a a very entertaining album a a spoof of uh, midwestern um amateur musicians who just have a good time playing and really enjoy themselves and think they're pretty good but anyway the thing is you know uh, really take 23 take 37 take 91 you know you really sit there and you think you know 
original cast albums are a bargain whenever you pay for them because i mean all the work and time that goes into them no wonder they cost what they cost and really uh, they're they're a steal under the circumstances and you really don't understand that until you really go to a session you know yeah. so um um so uh <laughs> i remember bob cuccioli um getting really angry with me um when i went to the recording session of and the world goes round <laughs> because um he was in the booth um singing a song and uh, jay david Sachs, the uh producer was saying okay bob let's do it again let's do it again so on and so forth and um and i was reporting the fact that you know look how many times they have to do things and um he said you had to point out the fact that i was making mistakes you know so um <laughs> i really didn't mean it that way it was just to to show that uh, perfection is what they were going for um i'll also um in that uh, arena um I remember Joe Sullivan at the, um, the Joe Sullivan lesser at the recording sessions of both the guys and dolls revival in uh, 92. Was that what it was? Um, 93 and, um, the most happy fellow the same year, both Frank lesser shows that opened very close to each other and, um, talk about perfectionism. Whoa. Uh, yes, indeed. So, um, yeah, those recording sessions are really something, but anyway, I'm getting off the topic because we were about to praise company. And, you know, the funny thing is we we're making a big deal now of the fact that Sondheim's turning 90. Well, obviously back then he was turning 40. And the thing is there was an old radio show called life begins at 40 and it really (laughs) did for Stephen Sondheim. (laughs) (laughs) And the, uh, company, anniversary is being used as a hook for this what sounds like it's going to be just an absolutely incredible event tonight um uh i'll read the item from deadline Uh, there have been lots of reports on this but jake gyllenhaal linda lavin lin-manuel miranda laura benanti neil patrick harris and ben platt are among the second wave of stars to sign on for sunday's stephen sondheim virtual birthday concert uh which i believe the title of it is being billed as i remember sky uh, which is that wonderful song from Evening Primrose, which I think came up early in this uh, COVID crisis as something that someone sang online as a wonderful comment on the situation. Um, also joining the All-Star Benefit for artists striving to end poverty are Annalie Ashford, Melissa Errico, Beanie Feldstein, Josh Groban, Judy Kuhn, Randy Rainbow, and Leah Salonga. Special appearances will be made by Victor Garber, Joanna Gleason, Nathan Lane, and Steven Spielberg. They'll all join previously announced Meryl Streep, Bernadette Peters, Patti Lapone, and Audra McDonald, among many others, in this special virtual concert to celebrate Sondheim's 90th birthday. And I understand that this has been primarily uh, put together by two people, Mary Mitchell Campbell, because that charity that we mentioned, Artists Driving and Poverty, that's her that's her uh, cause, and Raul Esparza, who, uh, if I understand correctly, has, has just been doing a phenomenal, incredible job. Well, you, you, you just heard the names um, mm-hmm. of, corra- of corralling people. Um, it, it does sound like it's going to be incredible, and it kicks off at 8 p.m. tonight, Eastern Standard Time, uh, will be available for free at broadway.com and the Broadway dot com youtube channel uh so i guess that means um those of us who uh already are are hooked up to watch youtube on our tvs 
uh, can uh, hopefully just do it there and, and stream it with no problem, even if we don't have one of those other devices that people use for that. So getting back to what I said a few minutes ago, um, uh, the good and the bad. I mean, if if times were normal right now, this would be a $1,000 a head ticket not streamed online, and right. we would have to talk about it and wish that we were there. And mm-hmm. anybody can see it now mm-hmm. uh, that mm-hmm. has got internet access, mm-hmm. and as well mm-hmm. as uh, the... the the company recording sessions uh, that are on YouTube as well and all these really other wonderful things. So it's exciting to have what a lineup for the Sondheim 90th celebration. Uh, Mary Mitchell Campbell is just amazing. After she takes a, uh, a good rest, we'll see if we can get her on to Broadway radio. Uh, I've known Mary for many, many years. Oh yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and on a similar note, um, I just uh, was going through stuff that I already have on video, and I have on Blu-ray the company, the Broadway company with Raul and Mary Mitchell Campbell, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And um, I put it on. I thought I would just watch a little bit of it, and I wound up watching the whole thing. (laughs) <laughs> so so well done and it, i i like to point to it because it is an example of i'm often accused of being uh, a traditionalist to the point of not being open to new approaches and new ideas um and sometimes i think it's true because <laughs> there are so many cases when of new interpretations that i really don't like but um then every now and then something like that will come along and it's completely untraditional and very original in, in, in terms of the concept and the presentation. But I think, and I don't necessarily agree with every single aspect of it, but it's so well done and so committed. And obviously they, these people love the material and they have a great respect for it. Uh, so I, if you have not seen that, I, I recommend it. And the, um, the, the video version of it is technically is superb. The camera work, the sound, uh, it, and Raul's performance, uh, especially as seen in close-up, because uh, it's a very subtle mm, performance, yeah. I would say. Mm-hmm. And the other, ca- the other members of the cast, Barbara Waltz, et cetera, really just, just superb. So uh, other stuff that we've uh, heard about this week, we teased it last Sunday, but uh, during this week we had the announcement of the Drama Desk uh, nominations and leading up to the 65th Annual Drama Desk Awards, which are going to be happening Sunday, May 31st at 7.30, and they're going to be streaming on uh, New York One, NY1.com and DramaDeskAwards.com. Uh, so you will be able to uh, get a chance to see the drama desk from the luxury of your own living room. Uh, and Peter, this is uh, quite a coup. The, the drama desks seem to be not missing a beat here. And your brother and the Tony Awards, we haven't heard a peep. I know, isn't this something? Um, I, I uh, nobody has uh, put forth a theory to me, anyway. Uh, what's going on uh, with the Tonys? Um, if they're going to happen at all, if they're going to happen at the end of the year, uh, but there have been theories that um, 
not only will they go um, at the end of the year, but from now on, they're going to be a, a yearly thing rather uh, at the end of the year rather than June. I mean, I hear all sorts of things, but nothing uh, that I can really believe or put any faith in. But um, but yeah, uh, the Drama Desk nominations came out. And um, of course, uh, as always is the case, you, know, <laughs> you look at the chat boards and you see the word snubbed and robbed uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> always. And uh, as well as I'm so happy for fill in the blank. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's very hard for seven people to agree on anything. And um, I'll tell you, though, we had to do our... Uh, uh, I'm on the seven nominees. I, I guess I should make that clear in case people don't know that. Anyway, um, what was really something is we had to do it virtually this year. We had to do it on Zoom. And um, and uh, frankly, it went faster than it did when we used to do it all together. Um, when we used to have to fill out papers with our 54321 um uh, ideas, but here we uh, we simply assigned a letter to every person we had considered. You know, um, uh, Joe Jones is A. You know, Emily um, Heathcliff is B. You know, so on and so forth. And so there we were saying N one, K two. You know, so on and so forth. Um, so it went very very quickly, and um, I, of course, you know, all of us feel uh, that. Uh, we'd, we'd like some people to get in and others that didn't. I will say this, if people were looking for the nominations for Six, the musical that um, was just about mm. to open, yes, it is true that all seven nominators had seen it <clears throat> before it had opened, but we felt that it was unfair to put it in contention because we knew it wouldn't get anything because most of our voters go after the opening, and as a result, you know, they wouldn't have seen it. So we thought it was fairer to put it in next year's group. Um, and, you know, to be perfectly frank, let's face it, um, there aren't that many new musicals anyway every year. So I do think that six will uh, um, rise to the uh, surface next year when it is considered. As far as the Tonys, the only thing I can guess is what I said um I think a couple of weeks ago, I imagine they haven't made an announcement because they don't fully know all the details of when it will be. I mean, they could certainly come out now and say, uh, well, it will not be in June. Uh, I guess they haven't said that, have they? I or believe, have they? I believe they've said that. Um, uh, one thing that uh, has been controversial is uh, the fact that um, Charlotte St. Martin said uh, uh, tickets are um, uh, refundable through June 7th. And people took that to mean right. that they're starting on June 9th, you know, and right. uh, she, yeah. she had to clarify that that wasn't what she meant at all. Right. It was just that's where we're giving refunds at this point in time. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, really, as William Goldman in his book, um, Adventures in the Screen Trade, says nobody knows anything, um, referring to very specific things about Hollywood. It's true across the board. You know, nobody really does know anything. I mean, I, there's so much. They say Francis Bacon was the last person in the world to know everything. That was a long time ago. <laughs> that was a long time ago. So it's just too hard. Well, um, and I, I, one thing I will say is I, I would not even begin to to make any critical comment about any decision that that is made as far as when they they have you know some people uh are very very strongly feel that that the award should remain at the time when they would have been and just uh include whatever's eligible but they don't understand the uh the fact that you know that the the, that thing you mentioned about uh even if all the nominators 
all the nominators saw it. There's vo- voters, many voters who would not have seen it. So then they're at a d- double disadvantage. And there are so many, uh, this is such an unprecedented, um, very, very horrendous situation that whether people decide to do it now and, and leave out lots of shows or wait a half a year or wait a year, I, I would not even begin to say anything against either decision because I think people are just trying to do their best and, and right. honor shows as best they can. That's right. So all the way back, uh, March 25th, which is nearly a month ago, which mm. seems like four years, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. we had a uh, an announcement from the Tony Awards via their uh, Slate PR folks, uh, uh, Sean Purdy uh, over at Slate PR sent out that the 74th annual Tony Awards scheduled to air live on CBS Television Network Sunday, June 7th from Radio City Music Hall in New York City will be postponed and rescheduled at a later date in coordination with our broadcast partner. The health and safety of the Broadway community and its fans are the utmost importance to us. We'll allow, announce new dates and information once Broadway opens again. So maybe they're waiting for Broadway to reopen before they make uh, some sort of decision. But we also heard this week that the uh, Shakespeare in the Park was officially canceled yeah. for the summer. Uh, I was very sorry about that. I really yeah. thought there was a chance of that happening since I it was did outdoors, yeah. you know. Um, so August, uh, <laughs> you know, July yeah, and August, sure, it seems yeah. so far away. And, they, and there is that theory, I won't say any more than that, that um, the virus doesn't um, survive very well in heat. Um, and so we can depend on heat in the summer. Um, so... So I, I, that really was a tremendously significant blow as far as I was concerned. Um, so, Yes, and as I mentioned, I've been reading that book on the history of Joe Papp and the oh, public yeah, yeah. theater yeah, and, and yeah. Such, a, such a rich history there. Mm. Uh, did I mention one of the things that uh, someone has posted recently is a 1974 uh, production of King Lear from the park, from the Delacorte, with James Earl Jones in the title role and Raul Julia or Julia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's, I just saw uh, um, a, a few moments of it just to check it out. And it looks like the quality is really superb. Uh, so that, that is something that you should definitely look up. Oh, it looks like it was on great performances. Yes, it was. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's usually pretty, uh, pretty good i found the video uh three hours of it on youtube i'll put it in the show notes in case uh oh it's vimeo it's not even youtube so uh yeah i will uh throw that into the show notes so that folks can uh take a look at that as well that's a great tip thanks michael sure and also we have uh our friends over at tedx broadway are uh gonna do streaming conversations with uh Jennifer Ashley Tepper, uh, Benjamin Schuer, and more. And uh, so there seems to be uh, a lot of stuff to keep us in touch with the Broadway community and what's what's happening uh, these days. One of the other things that's been happening is that um, Andrew Lloyd Webber's The show, the Shows Must Go On, Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals have been playing on YouTube, and this week's uh, feature was Love Never Dies. 
So, uh, Peter, you have some Love Never Dies stories. Well, um, I, I, I don't know about stories, but um, what I did do when I was playing in London was go to uh, see it on a Tuesday night after going to a Tuesday matinee of Phantom of the Opera. And what was so interesting, uh, I don't get press seats in London, so um, I'm a rank-and-file uh, TKTS-type person at Leicester Square. And um, so I bought my ticket for Phantom, which was Seventh Row Orchestra, way on the side. And I got my ticket for Love Never Dies, Third Row Dead Center. The new show wasn't doing as well as the old show. When I got to the Phantom Theater, um, pretty packed. When I got to Love Never Dies, half full. Uh, so, uh, there wasn't much interest in love never dies. And, um, I do think the idea of having Raul turn out to be a, a, not, not a good guy is a smart idea on paper in that, uh, you don't expect it because, um, especially after all I ask of you, one of the greatest <laughs> songs that to me was love at first here, the first time I heard it, uh, which was back in 1986 when Phantom was new and I made a special trip to London to see it. Um, so you really do believe that they're going to live happily ever after, but it is an interesting um, you know, conundrum to have him uh, turn out to be not such a good guy. And uh, But then again, <laughs> you know, you want Raul to be a good guy. You, you want to believe they're going to live happily ever after, but then there'd be no drama. So it, it was a tough thing. But, um, but if, in that version of the show, the wonderful song, uh, Till I Hear You Sing, um, is was about the fifth, sixth, seventh song in. And they knew they had a winner with that one. So when the uh, national tour came, um, that was never quite earmarked for Broadway, but you know that if indeed everybody went crazy for it, it would have come here. Um, I saw it in Boston on Super Bowl Sunday, where I saw many empty seats, uh, needless to say, uh, a lot of wives had empty seats next to them because their husbands were home <laughs> watching the Patriots um, lose to the Philadelphia Eagles that year. And uh, boy, um, even the husbands that were there at intermission, boy, did those cell phones go on quickly to find out how the Patriots were doing. Not so well as it turned out. But anyway, um, they opened the show uh, with that uh, song and um, because they knew, but then that became a tough act to follow. Uh, so, yeah, there's no question that Love Never Dies isn't nearly as good as uh, Phantom. But, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, everybody should know that it's hard to do sequels. I mean, the, the, hmm. there aren't that many sequels to Broadway musicals, but Lord knows um, the ones that have been tried. I don't think any has been successful. Um, Let Him Eat Cake ran 90 performances after of the I Sing ran four times as long, five times as long. Um, needless to say, Annie too, which I saw twice in Washington on the same day, once with Dorothy Loudon, once without, and, um, of course, bring back Birdie, uh, when I was at the first preview and, um, the audience was so happy at the beginning of the, before it started. And then at the end of the first act, the booze, literally booze. Wow. I don't mean people felt booze. I mean, you heard booze um so um so yeah so the sequels are just too hard so did you guys watch um love never dies i did not i got about 20 minutes in i had to turn it off uh-huh i just thought that the book and the lyrics were incredibly bad and okay and i'm a, uh, generally a fan of glenn slater um so that the lyrics uh being so awful uh really surprised me the book is partly credited to lloyd weber uh, so maybe that was a mistake uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. i uh 
I uh, started to watch it as well and honestly fell asleep. So, mm. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I think it's true about the uh, about the sequel thing. Uh, it's really hard to catch lightning in a bottle, although Hollywood seems to have yeah, made huh? it work. <laughs> Hollywood seems to have made the... Uh, but... But it, but I think that there was a dramatic departure uh, in uh, the storyline of Love Never Sings, the, much different than the way Hollywood does Love it. Hollywood dies. repeats. Love never well, dies. you know, you know the, other, the other thing, too, to be fair, I mean, if you get a Lennon Bolton uh, guide to the movies mm-hmm. and you see um, a title, let, let's just um, for arbitrarily um, call it um, Some People, okay? So Some People is the first movie, and you see three stars. And then Some People 2 you see two and a half stars and some people three, you see two stars. I mean, there's a <laughs> yeah. large diminishing returns. And then of course, some people four is called bomb, you know? So almost <laughs> everything you look at that has a sequel, there's a lot of diminishing returns. You know? So, um, uh, but it is true that um, Hollywood does seem to do them and we even expect them now from a popular movie. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the movie of Legally Blonde is awfully good. And uh, because it really does say, you know, if people don't like you, that's not a lifetime sentence. You can change that. And uh, I think that's a very important message to learn. But I hear Legally Blonde 2 is really putrid. And I, you know, even though I've seen it in bins for a dollar, I, I haven't bought it because I don't want that memory of that original property, which I admire so much, to be diminished. So... There have been, of course, some exceptions. The Godfather 2. I think uh, that's one of the reasons why people keep doing sequels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, in Star Wars, they just started in the middle. Yeah, right. 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 (laughs) (laughs) We didn't know that then, but... uh, Yeah, exactly. We didn't, we didn't. I mean, they they did indicate episode whatever, was it six or something like that? They started with four. Four, four? five, six. Four, five, six, then one, two, three, then seven, then seven, eight, nine. It's... Say, you know your Star Wars. Oh, we're big fans of Star Wars here in my house. My my daughter's uh, really, really into Star Wars and Sondheim. She's very much my child. (laughs) Have you ever heard the Strauss and Adams song for the musical version of Star Wars? No. Yeah. No, as I'm not sure this is what happened. I, I've heard the two songs. <laughs> One's called Hands Your Man, and um, the other one is My Something. It's a, it's a ballad. Um, I'm not saying this is true, but what I heard was that they approached George Lucas, and um, he said, well, let me hear a couple of songs. And they played, um, I think it was Lee Adams with Charles Strauss, and um, he said, stop right there. So, um, again, that may not remotely be true, hmm. but there are two songs that uh, certainly live in my house. So, um, Well, then there's that version that Bill Murray uh, sang back in the day on Saturday Night Live when he played that lounge lizard, oh, sure. yeah. Bruner character, mm. and he would sure. get up and sing, Star Wars, <laughs> fighting those Star Wars. <laughs> And, of course, we had that musical uh, by the very talented Billy Reese, um, yeah. um, at um, on 46th Street of St. Luke's. So, uh, right. so yeah. yeah. Um, but, I love uh, I really enjoyed that show. Oh, he's very talented. Yeah. And he's only like 22 years old, something right. like that. You know, so we're really going to hear from him as time goes on. Yes. So, so back to Love Never Dies. Um, yeah. Uh, a, a woman named Rebecca Selnow has put together a Spotify playlist uh, called Love Never Dies, but only the good songs. 
And, it, <laughs> and it's got five songs in it. And I'll link to that in the show notes. But, uh, Peter, you you alluded to uh, Love Never Dies Till I Hear You Sing as being uh, a song that you really enjoyed from I it. I did. I did. Uh, we, we all have those we things do. where um, there's one song that you play from an album that may not get played fully through or get played very often, but you play that one song all the time. Do you have a couple of those, uh, Michael and Peter, that you want to talk about? Oh, yeah. I mean, there there, um, there's really are so many. I, I, uh, what immediately comes to mind um, is a song from a musical called Balancing Act, uh, which was written by Dan Goggin, who's very famous, speaking of sequels, uh, for nonsense. <laughs> um, and he has a song, and uh, he, he did a, a show that had nothing to do with nonsense. Um, and some, I think it was somewhere between Nonsense 3 and Nonsense 4, um, and I'm guessing that. But anyway, there's a song called um, Saturday, uh, which indicates um, every day of the week is Saturday, when you're doing what you love to do. And I can certainly understand why the guy who wrote nonsense would feel that way, uh, that uh, indeed his life was so good during those years when nonsense was done everywhere um, to the point to which he was even getting embarrassed that so many checks were coming in. So, um, so it's a real perky song and I like it a lot. Um, and uh, that's certainly, I'm not the greatest Gilbert and Sullivan fan in the world. Um, I, I never mind going. Uh, I always have a decent time and all that, but um, but I have to say the poor wandering one uh, from the Pirates of Penzance is one that drives me crazy uh, with delight. Um, so um, and a little later on uh, in history, um, uh, again, I'm not a big Victor Herbert fan, but a song I can't do the sum from Babes in Toyland is one that really intrigues me tremendously. And um, so I'll start with those. Michael, where are you on this? Oh. Um I'm I'm just looking something up, uh, but one of mine is uh, there are very few cases I would uh, that I can think of where it's only one song uh-huh. in a sure. show. But there is one that did come immediately to mind, and that's actually a, a, another Lord Webber show, Starlight Express. Uh-huh. The title I, song. I love that song. The title song. Yes, uh-huh. I always loved it. Um, I like it a lot, but the one that drives me crazy and it was on my CD player on repeat, you know, like uh, for an hour was um, Only He. Only Me? Only oh. He, I think it's called. Oh, wait, did Diana sings this song? Yeah, I think so. So that that one that's my favorite from that one. But uh, I like Starlight Express. I think it's a good song. Sure. So the yeah, caboose the caboose sings a song called Only <laughs> Me. Uh but there's a bunch of there was a bunch of different Starlight recordings. So yeah, indeed. Right, right. Only he has power to move me is the lyric. So it, so my, the one only I like is only he has the power to move me. me? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's yeah. Oh, that's not the one I'm thinking. Only me <laughs> is a different is a different um it is the one that uh, I'll be near, standing by never fear you can cry in the wild 
I'll be near, standing by, never fear, you can try. Oh, my God. I, um, I busted myself as being a starlet aficionado. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. But really, that's that title song as, uh, I mean, I, I, I know it primarily as sung by the guy who, who played the role of Rusty on Broadway, Greg Mowry or Mowry, M-O-W-R-Y. Mm-hmm. I don't know what ever happened to him, but he really sang the hell out of that song just just beautifully and i've always loved it and i uh i think it just for me that's the one from that score that i will always listen to starlight express is the only show i've ever seen in london new york and las vegas yeah (laughs) (laughs) you saw the danger vegas show yep i sure did oh my goodness there's And the sets in each of those places look nothing alike. Um, yeah. So <laughs> nothing alike and, at all. And the, I think the uh, the Vegas show was much faster because they went from roller skates to roller blades. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, oh, it was totally out of myself here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, I, I have to say that two songs I would uh, that I really, 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 really like. I would like even more if they weren't interrupted by dialogue. And one um, debuted on Broadway 35 years ago today, and that was uh, Big River, the opening song, Do You Want to Go to Heaven? Mm. Which I think is a terrific song, but it gets short-circuited by dialogue interspersed. And I just wanted to go. Um, and uh, similarly speaking, I feel that same way about Life is Happiness Indeed, the song that was and added to the Candide revival, mm. the rewrite of the Venice Gavotte song. Um, and uh, again, dialogue interrupting it. In fact, I remember when that album came out in 1974 that I um, actually made a tape of the song editing out the, yeah. um, the uh, dialogue so that it would just flow. So I wish there were a recording of that song that was just without dialogue because um, I think it's a terrific song. And of course, uh, lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. Yeah, he came in to do the work. One of my complete albums that we talked about last week was the last five years, but it's funny because there's so many people online that have uh, reorganized last five years to a place straight through, and it yeah. doesn't quite work. But <laughs> doesn't quite work. But it's very funny that people are like, "This is me to be so angry." I've spent hours and hours and hours reorganizing this album to a place straight through. <laughs> you know, uh, on a different uh, tangent on that, um, there was a video of the Norman Conquests. Now, um, the Norman Conquest takes a long time to do, and um, it it does um, show you events that happen over the weekend, but not in sequence. And so one time I decided to um, watch it in sequence. I took uh, dutiful notes as to which one was Saturday night, which one was Saturday morning and so on. And I played it quite, and it's funny doing it that way because you hear a lot of exposition you don't need mm. <laughs> that <Yeah>. way. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, uh, but uh, you understand why Alan Aikborn, God love him. What a mind. Um, put it in there in the way that he put it in, knowing that uh, other people were not going to see it in sequence. So um, a terrific thing. Um, another song that I really like that, um, uh, that the rest of the album is okay um, is a song full of double entendres, and that's uh, in Yubi, My Handyman Ain't Handy No More, um, which, uh, <laughs> which is definitely what she's talking about is um, that uh, he's not having sex with her anymore. That he used to get up and daw at dawn and trim my lawn, you know. I mean, so um, I think that's very, very funny, and I certainly enjoy that. And I was very glad when the CD 
of uh, UB came out, uh, which was lo- a long time in coming. It, it's yeah, some of these albums really came out immediately, but UB took a while. But uh, to put that on repeat was great fun. So that was another one that um, I liked quite a bit. But also there were ones that um, I heard in the theater first. And I remember going to the tryout of Ben Franklin in Paris in 1964 in Boston. And um, as soon as the overture started, which isn't much of an overture, I knew that I loved this song called Half the Battle. And um, whoa, where is it going to be in the show? And luckily it was in the first act. I didn't have to wait too long. And when uh, Ed Sullivan used to have uh, Broadway shows on, um, it, numbers from Broadway shows on his show, um, that certainly was the number they, they chose, Half the Battle, in which Ben Franklin is rallying uh, his son and his grandson to um to join the fight to get france to uh, acknowledge that there is such a thing as the united states of america so um <laughs> it's it's a great song it's a very good album it really is uh i i have to say that um it's worth checking out and there's a very nice speech at the end of it by the way which is on the album and uh it's a great tribute to the fact that um you, you don't get many speeches on albums but this is a very good one to hear about the fact that we, uh, Ben Franklin is saying that in, in years to come, people will take liberty for granted, that uh, he knows that's going to happen, um, that they have to fight for it, but uh, people will just take it for granted, and uh, and that's too bad. And it's a very sobering uh, speech, and I'm very glad it made the album. Hmm. Michael, how about uh, we, we talked about your Starlet Express uh song mm. what other what other songs are your favorites well i don't know if this even counts but the only thing i like in the adams family score is that uh. theme by vic mizzy from the tv show <laughs> 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 which apparently got uh kind of like shoved into the score at gunpoint at the last minute uh and they had to pay reportedly yeah an incredible amount of money for it um and then and then um uh, mr mizzy i believe died right around that time uh, right, right after that happened, but at least he got, maybe he got to enjoy some, some of that money a little bit briefly and <laughs> uh, knowing that, you know, it just must've been nice to know how, uh, you know, what a special place that theme held in the hearts of so many people, uh, that it was actually added to the show. Uh, parenthetically, there was just recently, did you guys see this? I don't think we discussed a big article in the New York Times mm-hmm. about how mm-hmm. Adam's mm-hmm. family was retooled mm-hmm. for the, uh, you know, post-Broadway for the tour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And according to everyone, so maybe there's at least some truth in it it's vastly improved um, uh, yeah i saw the tour um in fact i saw it in boston and uh yes it certainly was better and what i have to say is uh, in terms of that theme song that you're talking about i thought it was very very smart of andrew lipper in his opening song when you're in adams to inco- incorporate the finger snaps um, because both times that I saw the show, once on Broadway, once in Boston, during the overture, when they went bam, 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 everybody in the audience yeah. immediately uh, snapped, snapped fingers. Yeah. And so it was very smart to have an yes. opening song when the fingers were snapped. Yes. I thought that was really a great idea, um, a great idea indeed. But uh, yeah, is this, you know, I, I, it's very healthy that um, shows that uh, do not do well on Broadway uh, have a good life um, outside. Uh, the, the, 
Broadway. It's really because there was a time when that didn't really quite happen with musicals. It did with plays, ironically enough. Um, Everybody Loves Opal was done all the time, and the the Curious Savage, all these shows that didn't do well plays, um, certainly had life in community theater. But musicals, not so much. And um, Susical was really one that um, that made that happen. Of course, and it's just, well, the Adams Family too. Both of them have brand names that people know, and I think that's uh, part of the reason why. But um, but it's nice to see shows do well um, after uh, not do, faring so well on Broadway. And yeah, and when shows are really improved after their initial production, wherever it may be, uh, I think that's very impressive because I am always almost think that it's harder to rewrite than to write uh, mm-hmm. because you have something in your mind and it's all set and then you have to you know if people don't respond that well you have to go back and i i think personally for me it's it's harder to almost harder to change something that already exists because uh, you're so kind of wedded to it in your mind but but if in fact um the adams family and another example uh, we were just discussing earlier supposedly love never dies uh according to many people uh was greatly improved from the original production in london and uh, the the one that they showed on television was a, a australian production mm-hmm. uh, and i don't i mean i don't know the London one. So I can't, I can't speak to it, but that is yet another example. And there, there have been a few others. Of course, there were the attempts with um, Scarlet Pimpernel while it was still on Broadway. Mm. Uh, and that was interesting. Uh, so uh, I guess yet we, we have to applaud the effort anyway. Whoa. I'm glad you mentioned Scarlet Pimpernel uh, because uh, that's another one that has a song that I'm crazy mm. for. And that's into the fire, into the fire. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, and even before I knew what it was going to be, and it's a great idea uh, the way they did it in the show because they started in one place and they wound up in another. So that's certainly moving the action forward as musical theater songs are um, supposed to do when they're supposed to do it. Uh, but Into the Fire, I think, is a marvelous song because to me, it's a 90s uh, version of the Riff song, another song I love um, <laughs> from the Desert Song, um, which... Uh, it, it really was that a, a contemporization of uh, of that song. So um, very very skillful. Um, my favorite Frank Wildhorn song by far um, is "Into the Fire." So and uh, but if you don't know the Desert Song, and I bet you don't, uh, many of you, um, the Riff Song is something that really is very exciting. Listen to both of them and see if you can tell what I mean. That uh, one is is uh, really in the spirit, but uh, updated. Um, so yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the Scarlet Pimpernel. Well, I actually had three songs on my list from that show. Uh, oh, okay. was one into the fire? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. And then another one was she. W- uh, she was there, uh, mm-hmm. which is Doug Sills's big Act Two uh, kind of love song to to Marguerite. That's her name, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, but my favorite of all is Storybook, which I just. <laughs> think mm-hmm. that is such a beautiful you are not alone song, I mean, yeah. it, that seems to be uh, the favorite of many many people i've talked to that's what they mentioned first when they talk about that show mm-hmm. yeah yeah so uh um and then there are all the other songs that I, I i think a lot of them are fine in themselves but that's one of those shows where i can't understand why he decided to uh you know that half the score should be in this kind of 
very obvious modern pop vein, <laughs> and then the other half in a wonderful traditional, you know, uh, music mm-hmm. theater operetta vein. Uh, I I personally don't think that works at all, but. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, some people agree, disagree with me. Uh, another Frank Wildhorn song that I think is very good comes from Civil War, and that's Sons of Dixie. <clears throat> and the reason I like that is there's a wonderful wrong note. Um, that's an expression that's often used. Uh, some people call it a blue note, but it's the note that uh, really is a little sharper, a little flat that, um, that you don't really expect. The best example, of course, uh, is in Joanna. Da 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 da. Yeah, that's a wrong <laughs> note, but boy, is it the right note. And um, Sons of Dixie has that too. Uh, so, um, you know, this is not a very well known Wild Hunt song, and certain, the show certainly didn't last long at the St. James, but, but nevertheless, I, I would say that that's really quite a wonderful one. Um, and then there are songs that, uh, from shows that are uh, certainly wonderful shows, but again, when uh, seeing them for the first time, when I was at the Washington tryout of Pippin, um, whoa, Irene Ryan comes out and does no time at all. And, uh, I, boy, I was crazy for that song. And especially when the, um, <laughs> the Gregorian Chan sheet music came down and we all followed the bouncing ball uh, <laughs> as much as I love the song up to that point. I mean, that was certainly eight cherries on the top of the Sunday and I love cherries. So uh, it really was uh, terrific. So it's not just a case of um, the songs that you love and scores that you don't necessarily care for, but, um, but there's that too. Uh, British shows. I have to say there are certain songs that, um, do um, speak to me tremendously. Uh, one of the first British cast albums I ever heard was Blitz. Um, I'm talking about shows that didn't play Broadway. This was Lionel Bart's show, uh, the guy who wrote Oliver. And um, it really was um, a tremendous experience hearing Blitz, uh, which is about the the difficulties that London had um, during the Second World War, when indeed people had to sleep in the subways, um, literally. And, um, and, and there's also a, um, um, a Romeo and Juliet type story with um, Gentile um, and Jew uh, falling in love, and uh, which complicates matters. But the big anthem, Who's That Geezer Hitler, uh, was one that really intoxicated <laughs> me tremendously. <laughs> Who does he think he is? We'll tell the Fuhrer as surer than sure that he will soon get his. If he weren't much littler, he would disappear. He's a nasty little bastard with a black mustache, and we won't have him here. Terrific song, um, which I like uh, immeasurably. Uh, Though Blitz uh, really is a terrific score. Uh, And if you don't know it, try to track it down um, because it's great fun. On a very different level, uh, we said we wouldn't look back. A song from Salad Days, a show that did play um off broadway for a tiny bit of time but um but it was an enormous hit there and i believe it was the first show cameron mcintosh saw that said whoa i love this thing called musical theater and uh, started them on the road to uh success so um so we said we'd never look back is uh, about people who meet again after a long time they were uh, i don't know if they were childhood sweethearts uh but um, it seems that I mean I don't know the show I've never seen it I only know the recording but it, we do get the impression of uh, that type of thing and it's a lovely lovely melody so um, so um, so those those are two that come from uh, British shows that I really be- uh, believe in but there's another show called Crooked Mile a British show that um, 
that has a beautiful ballad in too was something I think it's called um, If I Never Fall in Love Again. Let me check. If I Ever Fall in Love Again. Beautiful, beautiful song. Crooked Mile. I recommend it highly. If I Ever Fall in Love Again. That sounds mm. like it would be a learner or low. I suppose it does. Yeah, yeah. But um, in fact, um, this this may have. Um, I don't remember when um, Crooked Mile was. Oh, fifty nine. So it actually predates. Uh, if ever uh, I would leave you. So who yeah. knows? Maybe uh, uh, Mr. Lerner uh, took a trip to London, and well, you know, he was there for My Fair Lady. You know, that opened in fifty eight. So here's fifty nine, and we know My Fair Lady was still running. He might have checked in to see how it was doing. No, that's a terrible thing to say, and I don't mean it. I'm jo- I'm joking, but. Um, but nevertheless, it's uh, it's quite a beautiful song. So, Michael, what else you got? Um, I have a few others. Uh, I don't know if this even counts, but No Other Love from Me and Juliet. Uh-huh. <laughs> Why wouldn't it count? <laughs> well, because the, only because the music was written previously. Yeah, I had a by, feeling that's what you meant. Yeah, yeah. by Richard Rodgers for Victory, Victory at Sea. Victory at Sea, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the lyric was new. Uh, for me and Juliet. And I, yeah, I mean, people have written, spoken a lot about me and Juliet, how it just, just seems that uh, their heart wasn't in it. I think that Hammerstein really did not want to write that show and uh, Rogers pushed it. So obviously that I was, think it was the other way around. I think it was Hammerstein wanted it and Rogers didn't, um, oh, but you may be right. One of us is right. And one of us is wrong. Oh, okay. I, well, uh, <laughs> but uh my favorite for me and Juliet by far is intermission talk, um, oh. <laughs> which is a great idea. It started the second act. Uh, me and Juliet is is about the, uh, a Broadway show um, that and what Hammerstein wanted to do was not show um, the famous um, backstage drama of getting to opening night and all that kind of stuff. In four weeks, you rehearse and rehearse and all that stuff. What was, what was it like when the show was running after a while? Well, unfortunately, you know, there's not much drama there. Of course, he did invent some um, that you know, I will say rings true that, uh, uh, that there's a, somebody's interested in somebody else and somebody else's um, not getting the attention uh, from the woman that he wants and uh, it gets pretty ugly, but intermission talk um, is about having people in the lobby during intermission talk about the show that they're seeing, which is called me and Juliet. And, um, and they're complaining about it and all this kind of business for a long time. And, and they're complaining about Broadway. Uh, They don't make shows anymore like they used to um, all the (laughs) things we all say. And, um, but then everybody talks about how difficult it was to get tickets to Wonderful Town, The Crucible, boy, what a play. <laughs> uh, and, um, and at the end, they come to the conclusion that the theater isn't dying, um, that it will go on, and there's still a lot to be. Um, my love for my husband grew thinner. Uh, something like uh, when I went to see uh, Yul Brynner, it's, it's, it's a line, something like that. Um, so, so that's my favorite from uh, me and Juliet, which I'll grant you uh, is not a great score um, at all, but uh, that's such an interesting idea. And so beautifully realized that uh, I, uh, I do uh, enjoy it immeasurably. There's that other song from that show that now is, you know, is so completely totally dated and the title of it is keep it gay yeah uh yeah <laughs> of course we did hear another keep it gay song mm. many years later but in a very different context um <laughs> i you know i i shouldn't say that that's it for me and juliet because the um the second song on the show um 
that's the way it happens is a, a real swing in tune and um very much Rogers and Hart rather than Rogers and Hammerstein. Mm. Uh, and uh, that's worth hearing as well. I think that's uh, certainly I'm, I'm one of the people who am, am not very fond of pipe dream. Um, mm. And um, a lot of people think it's a good score. I don't, but um, I do like sweet Thursday um, very much from it. And I like it more on the um, encores album because um, I just don't take to hell and trouble um as uh in on that in in the original cast out so um so i was very grateful for the new recording because sweet thursday sounds a lot better with leslie uggams doing it <laughs> yeah michael you had another one what was it oh um yeah just maybe a couple more uh the title song from wish you were here <laughs> Oh, I was just uh, writing about that the other day. That's funny. yeah, yeah. I actually was in a production of the show on. Were Fire you really years wow. ago? Yeah. Did you have and a I, swimming pool? <laughs> not only did we not have a swimming pool, but the stage was so small that even if the whole stage had been a swimming pool, it probably wouldn't have been <laughs> wow. large enough <laughs> to have it. I mean, we it's were pool. we were like a two blocks from the beach. The the theater was like you know like maybe like a hundred feet from the beach. Does that count? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, but uh, the title song, which I, I think was kind of engineered to be a hit and it certainly was, it, it became a huge hit in a recording by Eddie Fisher. Um, and it is, and it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful song. It's, it's also perfect for the, for the show and the setting uh it's the it's exactly the type of song that should sound like a pop hit, I, you know, because of, of the nature of the song itself. So I think it, uh, you know, there's no like really selling out there in that sense. Um, but there are some other good songs in the show, including one called Shopping Around. That's a uh -huh. good one. Uh, and I like good, goodbye, love, uh, goodbye, love. I don't know if that's the actual title, but, um, and, and that song was thrown out very quickly. You may have heard that, uh, wish we were open to bad reviews mm. and Josh Logan, uh, who was also the co-librettist came back and worked on it afterwards. Um, which doesn't usually happen with a, a show that doesn't get good reviews. Usually people throw in the towel and that's the end of it. But for this one, he came back and reworked it. And I know that song, uh, was thrown out on the London cast album. It's not there. Um, but, you know, to be fair about the Wish You Were Here song, and I don't mean to criticize uh, your taste on this at all, Michael, but um, there is a theory that <laughs> Eddie Fisher was so hot then that everybody, the teenage girls were crazy for him, that the reason they bought the record was because it was the first picture sleeve with his picture on <laughs> it. It wasn't just a regular rapper that um, 45s used to come in or 78s, but the fact is that they were, the picture of Eddie Fisher was so alluring to many girls that they bought the record for that reason. I'm not number, sure I ever heard that. That's interesting. <laughs> it's the, it was the number seven record of the year, and it certainly hit number one a lot of times. And, you know, it's so funny that Broadway didn't really learn the lesson um, from Wish You Were Here that a title song can sell your show. And it really helps a great deal that um, that there we were, uh, and especially Harold Rome, uh, who wrote the song, was very famous for repeating um, lyrics, um, right. it, certainly in the song Fanny, 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 you know, so, uh, which was his uh, next show after that. But Wish You Were Here, um, I think was heard um, 
18 times um, uh, the, the words Wish You Were Here. So it's, it, uh, and so many song, shows that came after that did not have title songs. We really didn't have a big, 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 big title song until um, Hello, Dolly, which um, then influenced a lot of shows after that, right. and having plenty of title songs. I mean, if right. you look at the, the, the 10 years before and the 10 years after uh, Dolly, it's really very interesting. But think about it. You know, um, so many of those Tony-winning shows didn't, um, after Wish You Were Here, not that that won a Tony, but so many of those shows did not have title songs. Wonderful Town didn't have a title song. Mm-hmm. The Year Before the King and I didn't have a title song. You know, the Pajama Game had a title song, but think about it. Is it a minute long? Um, no My Fair Lady, no Music Man, no West Side Story, no Gypsy. These are big shows and no title tab. songs. <laughs> right. You know, there are so many shows that didn't have title songs. But after Dolly, suddenly, whoa, you know, I mean, there they start coming. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Sherry was called Dinner with Sherry. And then um, they thought, you know, you know, we have this nice title song. We have this nice song here, Sherry. Let's uh, call the show that. Not that it did any good, particularly, but that the attempt was made. Golden Rainbow had a title song. I mean, it was really, really something that became Vogue. And now it isn't as important. And I think the reason is that so many titles are known from their movies. So they don't really need title songs. We haven't had a title song in the Tony winning Broadway musical since in the Heights. But um, I was, but I was just going to say, but on the other hand, now we do have more title songs in the sense of the bio musicals and the jukebox musicals and the song catalog point. musicals. Very good. Point. And people in many cases are uh, finding that the best titles for these shows are a, yep. a title of one of the songs for Good for example, you. Um, Good point. But but it's I, in fact I think it's interesting that a lot of people think um, the title of the show is "Ain't Too Proud to Beg," uh, which is uh, the title of the song, I uh-huh, guess. But uh-huh. this, of course, the title of the show is just "Ain't Too Proud." Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's uh, a different way in which uh, we've come back to the title song. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted to throw in a few others here. Yes. Uh, you were talking about uh, the Frank Wildhorn and the trio. Nobody mentioned any Jekyll and Hyde. I liked Till You Came Into My Life from Jekyll and Hyde. Um, and uh, from Blood Brothers, I'm Not Saying a Word. Mm. So uh, those are two that I, I would throw in there that, the, you know, that are not my... Uh, Starlet Express favorites. I like Marilyn Monroe from um, Blood Brothers. I think it's a very smart idea for a song. Which and one? It happens so over, over and over. Oh, no, they repeat as, it so often. That may be, but the opening song where she talks about the fact that he left me for a woman who looked like mm-hmm. Marilyn Monroe is a very good idea. Yeah. So, uh, Speaking yeah. of, uh, uh, I'm not saying a word, James, um, Mark Hutchinson has, has recently become a Facebook friend of mine. He seems like a wonderful fellow he's the guy who originally sang that on on broadway oh uh-huh. you so know it was and nice to hook up with him what really surprised me is when i saw blood brothers in barcelona um that um even though i don't know spanish i i knew the song so as a result uh when the woman sang uh that uh, he left me for uh, for a woman who looked like marilyn monroe um, the audience went, oh, you know, I mean, and it was, you know, they say music is the universal language. And mm. uh, and certainly that lyric um, turned out to be universal, um, in, in at least in Barcelona, when I when I saw <laughs> Sangue to something, uh, whatever it was. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, 
I wanted to um, just uh, reach back to some previous episodes here and say that, um, you know, we've gone through so much um, on the spot, you know, asking of a question saying, what's your favorite? And coming up with an answer. Is there anything that you have missed in the last couple of weeks that you thought in retrospect, oh, you know what, I I didn't say... Um, uh, something rotten or something like that, you know, uh, anything that you feel like uh, we, we left out? It's funny that you say that because um, it's a very rare podcast where uh, five minutes later, yeah. um, after uh-huh. it ends, I, and of course, now I can't think of a single thing. But um, <laughs> my my wonderful friend, Robert Berger, um, pointed out to me that this is called staircase wit. Uh, it's a French term uh, that... Um, it, the, the scenario is you're at dinner and you, and then when dinner is over, you start going up the stairs to your bedroom and that's when it hits you <laughs> that um, you should have said a certain thing at a certain time. Uh, it drives you crazy that you didn't say it at that very moment in time. So yes, um, if it happens again this week, um, I will certainly bring it up next week. But um, yeah, um, again, uh, the memory plays tricks, the memory grows short. And um, so no, I can't think of anything that fits that dynamic, but believe me, I will five minutes after we finish. <laughs> yeah, and as for me, I, I can't think of anything specific, but I'm sure that, you know, to our Desert Island Discs list, sure. we, we could each easily add. Well, oh, like yeah, Krillark had, brought, Krillark had brought that up. You know, the fact is that I had said that um, uh, at an earlier podcast that my Desert Island disc uh, would include the Cradle Rock, the 1964 recording. Right. And last week, I didn't bring it up. Right. Um, right. You know, and oh, that recording is fabulous. That That is not on CD, I'm sorry to say. Uh, Jerry Orbach um, playing Larry Foreman um, in tremendous uh, performance. Really, really quite wonderful. Um, and uh, But that Mark Blitzstein score uh, from the first notes, uh, I heard, I remember exactly where I was, what I was doing. I was doing a jigsaw puzzle when I put it on. I mean, at that moment in time was so <laughs> frozen for me that, um, yeah, and um, it, that was close to 50 years ago when I heard it. And, um, but, it really was phenomenal. And um, so, yes, the, good for you. Um, uh, the Desert Island Disc, I forgot, was the Cradle Will Rock 64, a two-record set. <laughs> Kerr Lockhart, our official continuity editor. <laughs> <laughs> Across uh, what is coming into 600 this week on Broadway's. Really? 600, yeah, 600 no of them. Wow. wow. Yeah. I have no idea. So... All right, so I think that that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I would like to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, 600 times or so, you'll be able to download it to Apple Podcasts. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Uh, anywhere that you can find, a, find our podcast, you're going to be able to find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes uh, at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including the uh, Take Me to the World, the Sondheim 90th uh, special that's happening, uh, the company um, 
uh, original recording sessions. We have links to that stuff. And yeah, by like the way, stuff. I guess I was um, uh, incorrect. I thought uh, I, I, someone used, uh, I remember Sky as, a, a, I guess, a tagline for the show tonight. Uh, but that's not the title of it. But, but as we've discussed, it's wonderful that there were at least two songs in that score, Evening Primrose, that are so appropriate to, uh, you know, what we're all feeling right now. And I, I'm sure this is going to be an unbelievable event tonight. So if there's any way you can get to it on, you know, online or on your TV, that that would be amazing. I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I always thought I Remember Sky would be a good um, song in Guys and Dolls too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. After he dumps her, you know, right. which I'm sure would happen. Mm, yeah. So, Peter, do you have a uh, answer to last week's trivia question? Well, you may recall last week that I said, um, okay, this one's going to be really hard, hmm. really hard. Uh, and as it turned out, 14 people got it. <laughs> However, I will still maintain that it was hard. It's just that we have super smart listeners. That's mm. the reason. Okay. And the question looking. was, yes, indeed. <laughs> a famous musical that received a couple of Broadway revivals not only has its leading lady in a fictional place, but when she sings her first song, she's singing about a completely different fictional place. And that's Sharon McLaughlin in uh, Finian's Rainbow, who's in Rainbow Valley, Missitucky, and is singing How Are Things in Glockamora. Neither place is uh, um, an actual place. So Jack Leshner was the first to get it, followed by Michael Van Duzer, Steve Bell, Tony Janicki, Thomas Farrell, Joanna Abizi, Brigadude, Richard Carey, Ingrid Gammerman, Ethan Edwards, Mike Meany, Greg Christensen, Robbie Roselle, and Robert Lobiondo. By the way, Chris Skiles guessed Princess Winifred in Once Upon a Mattress singing about the swamps of home, which I'd say <laughs> right too. So anyway, well, since you're all so smart, I know you're going to get this one lickety split. And that is, why are these songs in this specific order? Don't be a bunny from Urinetown. <laughs> Reach from On Your Feet. Mine Till Monday from A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Fabulous Feet from The Tap Dance Kid. Soldier's Gossip from Passion. Lambert's Quandary from Ambassador. The Times Square, Ball Times Square Ballet, I should say, from On the Town. And Donna from Hair. Remember, you're looking for the reason why they're in this order. This is not a what do they have in common question. It's the order that's important. Hmm. Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Till I hear you sing once more and Sometimes at night time I dream that you are there But wake holding nothing but the empty air And years come and years go Time runs dry Still I ache down to the core My broken soul can't be alive and whole To 
Amen.